And a moral revolution consists of three elements. First, that which was once celebrated is condemned. Second, that which was once condemned is celebrated. And then third, those who won't celebrate it are condemned. I think when we hear that, it strikes a little close to home. Christians rightly perceive that the winds of culture are prevailingly becoming a headwind, and a stiff headwind at that. True, the headwind isn't such that we face jail time or death for our Christian conviction, but it is safe to say that we could very well lose our job over a Christian conviction. A Christian doctor could very well lose his or her practice over their Christian conviction. We are not in an easy season, and as we look to the future, most of us see storm clouds on the horizon. And the question is, how should we respond? How should the church of Jesus Christ respond in times like these? We could accommodate. So, we could bend our beliefs and our practices to the day at hand. We could do that. We could accommodate. We could avoid. So not bend our beliefs, but go silent about the gospel and its call on our lives. Just try to go undetected like a nuclear submarine under the surface of the water. Or we could engage. We could throw ourselves into the mission of the church Disciple-making through gospel proclamation. Living bold and courageous lives sold out for the glory of God and the good of sinners, come what may. In Texas, we'd say, come hell or high water, right? And it's my goal this morning to convince you that the third option is the only option God would have us to choose. As the church of Jesus Christ. That's my goal. And further, my goal is to show you that our challenges aren't new to us. God's people in every age have faced challenges to one degree or another. And then, one step further, it's my goal to show you that there is nothing here to fear. God is sovereign over all of this, over every chaotic wind of evil, and he has promised that nothing, nothing, nothing will conquer the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. And by way of reminder, let me just tell you that Ezra 1 is how Israel returned to the land. God ordained it, and he moved in the heart of Cyrus to send them back. Ezra 2 is who returned to the land, and Ezra 3 is what they did when they got there last week. And what did they do? They rebuilt the altar, and they laid the foundation of the temple. Now that, church, leads to trouble. (laughs) Immediately that leads to trouble. I want you to look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, 
You have nothing to do with us in building the house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, as soon as the foundation of the house is laid... I'm talking before the slab has even set, opposition arises. Now, why is that? Because the temple is evangelism that shouts to the world, Our God is God, and He alone is worthy of worship. And Satan hates that, and he always has. You know, to really understand what's going on here, What you have to do is you have to actually go back to Genesis 3.15. In fact, I want you to go there. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3.15. This is right after mankind's fall into sin. And I want you to look at what God says in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. This is speaking to the serpent. God says, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity. That's a big word for hostility. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a wonderfully deep verse with so much truth. For one thing, this is the promise of the Redeemer to come. I think some of you know that. Eve's descendant will bruise the serpent's head. That's a fatal blow. But the serpent will bruise his heel. And the fullness of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. The serpent wounded Jesus. He sent him to the grave. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus dealt a death blow to the serpent. Which is why Hebrews 2 says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has power over death, the devil. Amazing promise embedded in Genesis 3.15. But for our purpose this morning, I want you to notice something else. There's a beautiful promise of the Redeemer to come. But there is a painful promise here, too. What's the painful promise? It's that there will be hostility. There will be enmity between the offspring of the woman, God's people, and the offspring of the serpent, the world. God says there's going to be hostility between those who love me and there's going to serve me and want to spread my glory and there's going to be hostility between them and those who don't and this is so key to see because it helps us understand that what Israel experiences today and we're going to see some crazy stuff and what we experience today is all cut from the same cloth the serpent very simply put brothers and sisters does not want to see God's glory spread and so those who spread God's glory are opposed it kind of makes you think of 2 Timothy 3:12 all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what persecuted okay so what did opposition look like for them well first it's a temptation to compromise And we're going to cover a lot of territory this morning, but we're not going to read everything. You won't be exhausted by the time it's done. But maybe you'll be helped if you keep your bulletins open. Uh, Opposition for them first looked like a temptation to compromise. Let us build with you, they said, for we worship your God as you do. 
And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Okay, this is just total bunk. Okay? It's just total bunk. They may think they worship the God of Israel, but they don't. So these are folks from the nations that were sent to the land after Israel was exiled so that the land didn't lie totally fallow. And what happened when they got there is that wild beasts attacked them. I'm serious. Wild beasts like came out of the woods. It was like a horror movie and attacked them. So they sent word back to the king and they said, yo, we got a big problem. And so he sent priests to Israel. Uh, he sent priests from Israel to the land and they taught them the ways of God so that wild beasts wouldn't come out of the forests and eat their heads off. So they end up worshiping God, but they do it alongside their gods. So what is this? It's a temptation to compromise. These guys don't truly worship God. They may use some of the same words and phrases, but their allegiance isn't to God alone. They're, they're what's called syncretists. They combine the worship of God with the worship of false gods. And what they want to see happen is they want to see their compromised faith as normal amongst God's people. So that's a temptation to compromise. Now, the leaders, to their credit, see through this and they say, you have no part with us. You have no part with us. They see right through this theological and moral garbage and they're like, no. And we're like, yes, strong work. But then things heat up. Compromise didn't work. So plan B Outright hostility. Let's just take the gloves off. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even into the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So basically they're saying, okay, if we can't get our way through compromise, then we're just going to turn the engines of society against you. So they bribed counselors. This is political maneuvering. This is legal enactment. This is just making it very difficult, practically speaking, for the people of God to move forward with the mission of God. And I want to take a step back and I just want to state the obvious. The same thing happens today. Okay? So Christ Redeemer Church and Hanover, New Hampshire, we support them in our missions budget. They want to do this unbelievably weird thing and just build a church facility to help them proclaim the gospel. And the city of Hanover wants nothing of it. And so the first thing, the first opening salvo is compromise. Do you remember? Literally, this is, this, this is like happened. The, the city of Hanover said, you can build a building, but you can't open the windows. You can only have, yay, so many people on site. And you can't be on your property before 7 a.m. or past 9 p.m., except on Christmas Eve you can. We'll let you have people past 9 p.m. Well, CRC said no, which is right. They should have said no. And then the gloves came off. Well, okay, if you don't take that, then you can't build at all. And CRC is contesting it in court. May God be gracious, right? May God be gracious. And by the way, they're conducting themselves with such honor and kindness and love towards the city of Hanover in and through this. They're not taking the gloves off in kind. They're preaching the gospel. It's a glorious thing. But more broadly speaking, brothers and sisters, compromise and hostility is just the air we breathe uh, in, in, the, in our church today. I just want you to think about the social 
pressure that exists to compromise. How about just Darwinism? This idea that mankind is not a special creation in the eyes of God, but instead is the product of time, chance, and mutation. There's tremendous pressure to agree with this, and if let in, it really eviscerates your Bible. How about the sexual revolution? LGBTQ+, there's tremendous pressure to agree to this, but it's not in keeping with biblical truth, so we can't do it. And by the way, we can't compromise on plain old-fashioned heterosexual immorality either. So things like fornication and adultery, those are compromises to biblical morality that will eat us from the inside out. How about wokeism? The woke movement. Listen, brothers and sisters, as Christian, we are all for justice and equality. But as defined and promoted by the woke movement, this isn't justice or equality in a biblical sense at all. It's a perversion of biblical truth. And on top of social pressure, there's just mounting legal pressure, right? Who who isn't watching cases as they go back and forth with the Supreme Court? There's just mounting pressure coming from all sides. What is this? That's very simple. It's the seed of the serpent raging against the seed of the woman. It's Genesis 3.15. It's Ezra chapter 4. It's 20.21. And it's all cut from the same cloth. So what happens in Ezra's day? Well, the enemies succeed temporarily. I actually want you to look at verse 5. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They frustrated their purposes. What does that mean? I actually want you to flip to verse 24. So you're looking at verse 5. I want you to look at verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Verse 5 is an introduction. Verse 4 is a summary. End result. The adversaries stopped the construction of the temple from 536 B.C. to 520 B.C. That's 16 years. So 5 is an introduction, 24 is a summary. All of the verses in between, they're actually an aside about opposition even further off in the future. Okay, So verse 6 says that there's opposition in the days of Ahasuerus, and he reigned from 486 to 464. That's future, not today. Verses 7 through 23, there's even opposition in the reign of Artaxerxes. He reigned from 464 to 423. He's going to be a central character in the book of Nehemiah. Now, all of that, all of that is in the future, okay? Why does the narrator put it here? Well, he puts it here just to show us that opposition isn't just for 16 years. It keeps going way off into the future, okay? But just think about this. Verse 24. Construction ceased from 536 to 520. For 16 years. God's people's efforts to declare the glory of God to the nations went nowhere. I can't help but to note that as we think about the church writ large, as we think about the universal church, we just can't determine what season God is going to have us occupy in our lifetime. You know that? So, so we don't know 
whether we're going to live through a period of revival or a period of drought. And on a smaller scale, thinking about our own local church, we can't determine the seasons God's going to have us walk through either. There may be seasons of sweet growth through conversions, the baptismal waters stirring and sinners proclaiming allegiance to Jesus. And there may be seasons of drought where we think, you know what, nothing's going on here. We can't control these things. And while we can't control outcomes, and God doesn't want us to control outcomes, (laughs) or try, we can control how we respond to seasons of drought. And to that end, I actually want you to look at chapter 5. The season changes here in chapter 5. And rebuilding starts back up again. So look at 5 verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. All right. This is 520. Okay, this is 520. 16 years have passed since the foundation was laid, since opposition arose, since construction stopped. 16 years have passed. The prophets of God, Haggai and Zechariah, encourage the people to build again. And they do. Verse 2. And they began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is awesome. And we learn something very revealing, though. If we note what the prophets said to the people, do you know what their message was that spurred them to action? It was a stinging rebuke. I'm just going to read for you Haggai chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to me. In the second year of Darius the king, that's 520, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, so that's Israel, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, nobody's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Listen to me. God's people are not rebuked for the construction stopping because of opposition. They are not rebuked for that. 
They're rebuked because they became distracted and disinterested in the glory of God. They're rebuked because they became more concerned with their own pleasures than they were with the mission of God. And this is a danger for God's people in every age. Jesus warns us there are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. How broad is that? Enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. You see, the people of God just got distracted here. Distracted from the mission disinterested in the mission. And you know what? Since we've got to be about something, if we're not about building Christ's church, we're going to be about building something. And it's likely to be focused around our own pleasure and comfort. Either say amen or oh my. God's word is accurate, right? It is. And here's something else that's true. When God's people hear God's word... They respond. (laughs) Praise God. When God's people hear God's word, they respond. They do. And that's what happened here. The prophets call them to action and they get back to business. Praise God. And as you might expect, as soon as they're back to business, well, here comes opposition again. Verse 3. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province, I'm in uh, Ezra 5, verse 3. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke thus. These are just Israel's neighbors, okay? What'd they say? Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So they write this letter, and we're about to read it. And the letter may sound neutral to you, but make no mistake, it is not neutral. These guys wanted to stop them. They just had the plain common sense that they need to know where the king stood before they did. So they wrote this letter, and here we have it in verse 6. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which it was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. And we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them for their names, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. How helpful. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. 
and the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time forth until now it has been building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, If it seemed good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So that's the letter. That's the challenge. What's the king going to say? I know you're dying to know. God's going to answer it. So let's just look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which it was written, a record in the first year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Sheth Bazar, Sheth, whew, Shethar Bozani, say that five times. Shethar Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, look at what it says. Keep away. <laughs> How do you like that? They, they, they sent the king saying, hey, tell them to stop building. The king responds, hey, you stop hassling. That's like fantastic. Fantastic. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, get a load of this. I make a decree that you shall do for these elders of Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house. He shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overflow any, overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. How do you like them apples? This is incredible. This is incredible. 
This is a pagan king. Not only is he positive towards Israel rebuilding, he even pays for Israel to rebuild. And it's even more incredible when you consider this. This is not a servant of the one true God. Don't, don't equate him with being a servant of the one true God. He's not. He issues this edict because he wants the favor of the God of this area to be upon him. That's why he says, let prayer be made for the king and his sons. And let the God of this land basically be appeased. This is in his own interest that he does this. But over and above all of that, the ultimate reason he issued this edict is because, do not miss this, it's because God moved him to do it. This is Proverbs 21 one again the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the lord he turns it wherever he will this is the sovereignty of god in action the kind of sovereignty of expansive expansive sovereignty that takes wicked intentions of tatnai and shethar bozani and turns them into a blessing for God's people and God's glory. It should make you think of Joseph and when he turned to his brothers and he looked them in the eye and he said to them, the ones who sold him into slavery, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. One of the most comforting doctrines in the entire Bible is the absolute expansive sovereignty of God over everything that happens. It is comforting because in the good times we know that it is God who takes care of us. But even more so, I'd say it's comforting in the bad times because we know God's still in control. So those 16 years where nothing happened, God was sovereign over that, working out His good purpose in that. And His good purpose... And that was that in due time and at the right time, the temple would be completed. Look at verse 13 of chapter 6. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of God and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. The building stopped in 536. It picked back up in 520. It finished in 516. And I want you to notice how the text describes how all of it came to pass. It was all in accord with the decree of God and the decrees of these pagan rulers. God used them to accomplish His purpose. Now, if you're an Israelite here, you just can't help but to just downright get excited. And that's just exactly what they did. Look at verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. 
They offered at the dedication of this house 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, male goats according to the number of tribes of Israel. And they set priests in their divisions and Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. This is just a celebration, okay? And then they just continue the celebration with the Passover. So just pick up in 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them. And had separated himself for the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So it's not just Israel that worshipped here. It was, it was converts from the glory of God being declared through the building of the temple. There's converts here. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful. Yes, he had. And he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Yes, he had. So that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Whew. You know one reason why I just like to read a lot of the text to you? It's so that you can get excited just by the text of Scripture itself. So that you can get a sense of the, the fact that Scripture itself is exciting. I mean, Scripture tells a pretty mean story, right? And this is all true. But in this case, the truth is better than fiction. Netflix ain't got nothing on this. The temple has been built. The lighthouse designed by God to broadcast His glory to the nations is up and running. And that despite fierce persecution and opposition. But the Jews have just kept at it. And God has ensured their success. So what do we do with all that? The same exact thing they did. Brothers and sisters, we've got to labor in the mission God's given us to build His temple. God gave them a mission here, right? Right? Rebuild the temple. Well, to what does the temple point? To Jesus Christ and His church. Jesus Christ is the temple. Tear this temple down, and in three days, I will raise it up. He's establishing Himself as the temple. And then Paul says that we are the temple. He says in Ephesians 2 that Gentiles and Jews together are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we grow together into a holy temple in the Lord. Peter says that they we're like living stones, like stones were used in the construction of the temple. We're like living stones, soul by soul, that is built up as a spiritual house to God. And then in Revelation, John sees the church in the end, in her fullness, as the dwelling place of God, the new Jerusalem, the new temple. And he just sees her in, his fullness, in her fullness and he's overwhelmed. 
The temple in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and the church in the New. And seeing this reality, the continuity between Israel's mission today and ours is plain as day. God wants us to build his church. God wants us to build his church brick by brick, soul by soul, not with timber or stone, but with grace and truth through preaching the gospel. This is how God declares his glory to the nations. Not through a physical temple, but through the church being built up. Now Satan hates that. (laughs) He always has. And so he opposes us, just like he opposed Israel. But Jesus promised us what? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Church, God was with the Jews this morning. Right? God was with the Jews this morning. He was spurring them on through prophetic encouragement, moving in the hearts of kings. And to what end? The completion of the work. So too God is with us. The sovereign God who saw to it that the temple was completed will see to it that the church is resplendent with glory in a coming day. It's just a matter of time. But until that time, we have work to do. Until that time, we have work to do. Brothers and sisters, this text challenges us to give our lives energetically and perseveringly to the work of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you even to the end of the age. I started off the sermon with a question. What do we do in the face of increasing headwinds towards the church? The answer is to keep preaching the gospel with your lips and keep demonstrating the gospel with your lives. Keep preaching the gospel with your lips and keep Demonstrating the gospel with your lives. Don't be frustrated. It is so easy to be frustrated with the increasing hostility towards the gospel. I know. But listen. Don't go to Facebook and light up the world. Instead, go to your friends that don't know Christ and share with them the light of the world. Listen, people aren't the enemy. Satan is the enemy, and Satan has people blinded in their sin. Let's build relationships with our neighbors. Let's invite our co-workers to church. Let's do evangelistic Bible studies with anybody that has a pulse. Let's introduce people to the God that they do not know. Think about the glorious inclusion 
from the nations who worshipped with Israel on the day when the temple was celebrated with the Passover. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I want you to know the message to you is not one of condemnation. It's one of salvation. Would you like to be a part of the church victorious? Would you like to separate yourself from the uncleanness of the land and the condemnation of sin? And would you like to be forgiven? And would you like to be accepted? And would you like to have a mission and purpose in life beyond what is here for 60 to 70 years while you're trying to live your life and be satisfied, but you will not be satisfied by the things you're trying to be satisfied with? If you would like it, then come to Jesus Christ. He died and rose to pay the price for sinners like you. If you will turn from your sin and trust in Him, you will be forgiven, accepted, and part of the church victorious. So, brothers and sisters, it's our privilege to to proclaim this, right? Don't be frustrated. And don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. Don't be frustrated. Don't be fearful. What's going to happen in the future? (laughs) Where is the world going? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I know that the church experiences seasons of hardship and seasons of peace. But I just know this, that there is nothing to fear because God is with us. God is sovereign. And God has promised that nothing will ultimately overcome his church. And so that helps you. It helps you go to work each day prepared to lose your job over your Christian conviction because there's something bigger going on. There's something bigger going on and you're a part of it and God's going to take care of you. So go to work prepared to lose your job over your Christian conviction with no fear. There's nothing to fear. And don't be distracted. Remember what Israel did for those 16 years where the times were tough? They got distracted. They left off living for the glory of God and instead just focused on their own pleasures and pursuits. Oh, this is a danger. Distraction through the pursuit of pleasure. May we not live lives dedicated to to lesser things than Jesus Christ and His glory. And just a helpful side note, here's something about this. (laughs) You can actually do something about this. So this morning, if your heart is not excited about gospel ministry, you can do something about it. (laughs) Instead of binging Netflix night after night, you can just pick up a book about theology and begin to read that and it will move your heart towards the things of the Lord. Look at our research page, resource page on our website for suggestions. Talk to me. Instead of scrolling mindlessly through social media, you could call your brother or sister and ask them how they're doing and pray for them. Instead of spending your evenings or Sundays alone, you can invite your brothers or sisters from church over for a meal and ask them what the Lord's teaching them and give yourself to intentional spiritual conversation. There's just so many ways you can move your heart towards God's mission. Ask your home group for prayer about this. Give yourself to consistent prayer about this. Take on mission this year. 
where you're going to spend time thinking about God's mission. All of these things have an effect on your desires and they help you turn away from distraction. So brothers and sisters, don't be frustrated. Don't be fearful. Don't be distracted. We have a mission. We have work to do. My prayer is that each of you this morning are stirred up in your heart to keep laboring in Christ's vineyard. To center your life around the mission of God, the building up of Christ's church for the preaching of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this exciting mission that you have given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ who crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and has therefore conquered death and has the keys of life and has given us life through taking our sin and through rising victoriously and who promises to one day come back and to make all things new. We thank you, Father, that we are caught up in this glorious vision. We thank you, Father, that you promise that you will not leave us or forsake us. Give us grace, Father, to just keep building. No matter what season we find ourselves in. In a macro sense, in a micro sense. Help us, Father, to keep building. Keep us encouraged. Keep us in the game. Be gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen.